All right. The title of today's message is Righteous Over Much is Not Righteous. How Overly Strict Standards Destroy That Which They Mean to Uphold and How Being Overwise in Regards to Lying Causes One to Be a Liar or Lying Part 3. Um, our text today is Ecclesiastes 7, 16. We'll be turning there probably a few times. Um, and it says, Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Lord God, we do thank you for this day, this day that we could come worship you, God. Please give us ears to hear your word, God, a heart to receive it, God. Please just be in this assembly as you've promised to be. We trust you and take you at your word, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, today we're going to talk about righteous over much and how it causes destruction to the person who engages in such error. We'll look at several examples with a specific focus on the sin of being righteous over much in regards to lying. So what does it mean to be righteous over much? And how can we make ourselves overwise? Let's take a look at the verse again in the context of the surrounding verses. Starting with 15, it says, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not thou over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time. This passage starts by saying that Solomon has seen good men die in their goodness and bad men live long in their wickedness. He then explains that this can lead to two temptations. We'll start with the second one first. He cautions us not to be overmuch wicked. The idea is that because we see that a wicked man's life is prolonged, the temptation is that we can just live foolishly and not expect any consequences. He talks about this in the next chapter in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. He says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he feareth not before God. Notice that by warning not to be overmuch wicked, that does not imply that being wicked at all is acceptable. The temptation he is warning against is not to respond to God's mercy with us, even when we are wicked, by continuing in our wickedness. It is foolish to be wicked at all because God's judgment is coming. Similarly, the warning against being not over-righteous overmuch is not suggesting that it is wrong or even possible to be too holy or too careful in our walk with God. Notice in Matthew 5 verse 19 it says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> God cares even about even the least of these commandments. 
And look what our Lord says later in the chapter. In Matthew 5, verse 48, it says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven, which is in, as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. God wants us to be as righteous as we can be. Matthew 22, 37 says, Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. So if God expects us to be righteous and as holy as we can be, what does it mean to be righteous over much? Well, look at that preceding verse that's immediately preceding our verse again. It says, um, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth, uh, perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Just like there's a temptation to think that living in wickedness will not cause destruction, it's also possible that one sees someone perishing in their righteousness and think maybe it was because they simply were not righteous enough. When in fact, dying in righteousness simply happens sometimes. Isaiah 57, 1 says, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth at the heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. If a man's ways are righteous enough to be said to be righteous, he won't die because of that righteousness not being righteous enough. He might die for being foolish in another aspect of his life or for other reasons, but it won't be because his righteousness needed to be even more perfectly righteous. We can show many examples of that, but let's look at Asa. So Asa was a king of Israel, and it says that um, uh, in 2 Chronicles 14, 1 through 4, so Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days the land was quiet ten years, and Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange god, gods and the high places, and brake down the images and cut down the groves, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. So Asa was a righteous king. He did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, the Bible says. Now let's look at his death in 2 Chronicles 16, 12. And Asa, in the 30 and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. Asa didn't die because he didn't break down idols or cut down trees of the pagan groves fast enough. He died because he foolishly put too much trust in physicians and didn't seek the Lord when he was sick. Just as an aside, we really need to make sure that we seriously seek the Lord when we are sick. It's not wrong to use physicians, but the first one we must seek, our true primary care physician, needs to be the great physician, our Lord Jesus Christ. Although that phrase does not appear in our Bible, Jesus Christ is the great physician as he is the fount of all healing. Exodus 15, 26 says, And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, for I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. So being righteous over much or trying to make oneself over wise is trying to go beyond what God establishes as righteous or wise. For example, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. And God regards death itself as an enemy. 
talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. From this, we know that death is bad and that killing is bad. We should not kill people. How might someone be righteous over much in regards to not wanting to kill? Someone might suggest, well, just being angry or calling someone names. Maybe that's being too overrighteous or too extreme in the application of the verse that says, thou shalt not kill. But that's wrong. Look at what our Lord says in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So we risk judgment just by calling our brother or sister a name or being angry <laughs> unjustly with them. So that is not being righteous over much. Now take a look at this passage later on in Matthew 5, in verse 38. It says, Ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. The Mennonites and others use this passage, along with the passages like thou shalt not kill, to teach pacifism. They do not believe in self-defense or violence for any reason at all. The eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth reference comes from Exodus 21 and includes the concept of killing. In verse 23 of Exodus 21, it says, And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. But their interpretation is righteous over much. Those that hold to it are trying to make themselves overwise. But when being overrighteous, the Bible warns that they destroy themselves. Again, our verse in chapter 7, Ecclesiastes, verse 16 says, Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? How do they destroy themselves? In this case, it is plainly apparent. If those, or those that they love, or the innocent are attacked, and they don't properly defend themselves because of their doctrine, their devilish doctrine of pacifism, they'll end up being destroyed by evildoers. Now, people that are proponents of this doctrine will object to the term pacifism. They deny that they are being pacifistic because they would say, well, they do defend themselves. They would just defend themselves via prayer, or via words but they wouldn't just be passively allowing themselves to be attacked. Um, they believe that God will deliver them and that he is powerful enough to deliver them for doing right. Now, God is surely powerful enough to answer their prayers and deliver them, and he just might do that in his mercy, overlooking their foolishness. 
But to rely on that mercy when they are being righteous over much in their unbiblical doctrine is simply testing God. It might not work. It's a foolish gamble to take. When the Bible says, resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, it is not saying that if he stabs you in the kidney to turn your back and give him the other kidney, or that if he steals your daughter to give him your other daughter. That interpretation is insane. Romans 12, verse 17 says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. So there's that same concept as resist not evil or no eye for an eye. It goes on to say, though, that provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. <coughs> it's not always possible to live peaceably with all men. If someone, someone is going to kill you, or steal your wife or children, you need to defend yourself, and it might involve killing. And God was not getting rid of capital punishment in that verse in Matthew. He was condemning the idea of personal revenge for personal slights that can be ignored in Christian charity. We can see that because it specifically says if he smites you on the right cheek. The Bible knows that some people are left-handed, but being left-handed is more uncommon. In Judges 3, verse 15, it says, But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. It mentioned that he was left-handed because that was unusual, just like it is today. So we are meant to interpret this passage as if the one doing the striking is right-handed since that's the common handedness of people. If you smite someone on the right cheek with your right hand, it's a backhanded, insulting smack. It's not some kind of knockout blow like you might deliver them if you smote them on the right cheek with your left hand. Like, you know, it's a, an insult. The context here is not self-defense and does not support pacifism taking verses against killing and against resisting evil too far will lead to destruction of the person making that grave error of being overwise. Let's look at another example again from Matthew chapter 5. Again, in Matthew 5, at verse 31, it says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, Saving for the cause of fornication causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. The Bible teaches that divorce is wrong. God says that he hates it. In Malachi 2, starting at verse 14, it says, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Putting away is another term for divorcing your wife. Now, the Bible gives exceptions to the forbidding of divorce.
These exceptions are adultery and malicious desertion. The adultery we saw in the verse we just read when it, saw, when it said saving for the cause of fornication. The Bible will use the terms adultery and fornication synonymously at times. The desertion exception is found in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, 15, it says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And in the context, the bondage is referring to the marriage bond, which truly would be bondage in a negative sense if that marriage covenant was forced to remain after being abandoned by a spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, 27, it says, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Since God hates divorce, some will become righteous over much and teach that divorce in any case or in a much more restrictive set of cases is the way of truth. Focusing on one example, some will say that even adultery is not cause for a divorce because the Bible says saving for the cause of fornication and they believe that fornication refers to intimate conduct outside of marriage. They then re reason that this must be intimate conduct that occurred before the marriage. But leaving aside the fact that the Bible will use the terms fornication and adultery interchangeably at times, this interpretation just does not make any sense. If one is allowed to divorce for unfaithfulness before the marriage, how much more would one be allowed to divorce for unfaithfulness during the marriage? This righteous overmuch doctrine, this overstrict prohibition on divorce, leads to destruction in many ways. Imagine a husband that can just go around using whores, becoming disease-ridden, and then coming home to his wife who could not leave, but instead had to render due benevolence. This would cause physical destruction to the husband and wife. Physical destruction would also be tempted as anger arose in the innocent spouse, who had no way out of this horrific situation and so could be tempted to kill someone. And most ironically of all, this doctrine, this overwise doctrine, which by making divorce harder would seem to make divorce less likely in reality, would make divorce more likely. The reason is because the temptation to commit adultery would become stronger if one thinks he can get away with it and not lose his marriage. But when he commits adultery thinking he can do so with impunity and not lose his marriage, in reality, most wives or husbands, when face-to-face -face with the reality of a cheating spouse, will end up getting divorced, regardless of the doctrine they thought they believed before being confronted with such treachery. And just to illustrate one more way this overmuch righteous doctrine causes destruction, consider this scenario. A wife has a cheating husband who then leaves her. She gets divorced and later finds a man never married before who marries her. Then they have children. Suppose then they both get saved and obedience to the Lord start attending a local church. Imagine then that this church teaches the doctrine that divorce is not allowable, that it's not recognized by God, even for adultery and desertion. They will claim that the wife is still actually married to the cheating husband who left her and that the new husband is not really married to her at all and in fact can't be. It's just an adulterous relationship that needs to be severed. 
After the husband and wife sever their presumed false marriage, the husband then marries some single lady at the new church while his wife who bore his children is now left out in the cold. I don't recall the name of the book, but I saw that exact evil scenario described and defended in a book that was promoting this righteous over much view of divorce. So ironically, we see again that righteous over much causes destruction. In this case, being righteous over much in the defense of marriage actually tends to cause the destruction of marriages. We have recently been preaching on the doctrine of lying. Being overwise in regards to lying will lead to destruction, just as being overwise in these other doctrines has been shown to bring destruction. In the case of lying, being overwise will cause destruction to the truth and cause one to become a liar. Before we delve into this, let's review the Bible's teaching on truth-telling and lying. The Lord expects us to be without guile. Psalms 34, verse 13 says, Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. This lack of guile is not just to be in our mouth. Our very spirit within us and all that proceeds from it should be without guile, whether word or deed. Psalms 32, verse 2 says, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Limiting this commandment to not have guile to the spoken word, or thinking that one can avoid the sin of lying by deceiving someone with carefully chosen words, is foolish. We see that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. In John 8:44, it says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Deception is not something believers should be engaged in. Lying is a word that is fraught with terrible connotations like murder. So we don't see that word or phrase used of people following the Lord. Yet at times, people in the Bible do engage in outright deception, even with their lips, and are praised and rewarded for it. In our modern colloquial speech, we might refer to this as lying, but the Bible itself never calls these faithful believers liars. You might say the word liar is akin to murderer in its bad connotations. Like the divorce and killing exceptions we gave, these exceptions to being deceitful should not occur very often. Like divorce or killing, deceit very well might be something where we could go our whole entire lives with ever, without ever having the actual right to engage in it. We previously saw how Rahab was specifically justified what, by what can be colloquial referred to as a lie. James 2 verse 25 says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Sending out the spies another way could not have happened if she did not first send out those looking for them a false way. Some commentators contort and rest the scriptures so much that they think that when she said the men that came to her left at the gate, that she must have been referring to some different men who must have visited her just prior. Um, and thus, technically, she was not lying. There is obviously no evidence in Scripture this occurred. But no matter what word she used or what tricky context or leaving things out she had done, 
We have already seen that if she spoke words that made the men of Jericho think the spies had left when they did not, she would still be engaged in the same level of deception regardless of her word choices. This supposed deception would be just as wrong as an outright verbal falsehood that she actually did tell. The midwives also spoke false words and were dealt with well by God for it. Exodus 1.19 says, And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. The midwives lied, so-called, about the Hebrew women being already delivered, and thus God dealt well with them. And the people multiplied instead of being killed by replacement midwives had the righteous midwives told the truth. So what is the righteous overmuch view of lying? The righteous overmuch view on lying, which again, to be clear, is not actually righteous at all, is the view that telling any falsehood with the intent to deceive is always at any time wrong. But like the pacifist view on never defending oneself by killing, or the view of never divorcing, even for adultery, this overwise view causes destruction. The first and obvious way it can cause destruction is by the death that would occur when not defending oneself with a falsehood when required. The spies would have been found out and destroyed had brave Rahab not deceived the men of Jericho. If she had said nothing, they would have searched her place and found them. Had the valiant midwives, who deceived Pharaoh at the peril of their own lives, instead told the truth about their saving of the men children alive, they would have been replaced by midwives who would have killed the Hebrew children and prevent Moses from being saved by Pharaoh's daughter. One might answer that had Rahab or the midwives prayed to God, God could have found a way to deliver them without any deception being necessary. That's true. God can deliver any way he pleases. But God plainly allows blatant deception. It is as self-evident as killing in self-defense as being lied to is certainly not as bad as being killed. We'll examine this in more detail when we look at the example of Elisha and the blinded soldiers. But when God plainly allows and even expects us to defend ourselves appropriately, even including with telling falsehoods if necessary, is a presumption to expect God will miraculously deliver us when we refuse to take a lawful way of escape. This idea that God will deliver us somehow is the same thing all these false, over-righteous interpretations of Scripture use as their supposed way out. Whether it is saying God will protect our health no matter what we choose to eat, or if we follow the overwise view on women submitting to their husbands, where women must submit to their husband in everything, even if it's a sin, but that God will miraculously deliver them before they sin, these all presume upon God and risk our destruction. People have actually written books about that too, that if that women are so much supposed to submit to their husband that they're supposed to do whatever he says, even if it's a sin, but then God will somehow make a way of escape so they don't sin. That's, that's not right. That's insanity. It's like the rest of these. Um, so like the, like the Mennonite pacifistic view of self-defense, or the idea that one would have to stay married to a husband that was bringing home harlots every night, this idea that it is wrong to tell a falsehood when someone is trying to kill you is a foolish idea that generally only arises when one tries to be overwise as a result of being deceived by a false doctrine. 
The destruction caused by this overwise prohibition on speaking falsehood does not just risk physical destruction to those that engage in it. Even more pernicious is that it causes destruction of the truth. Just as with overmuch righteous false killing doctrine begets killing, and false divorce doctrine begets divorce, so does false lying doctrine beget lying. We see in the scriptures that lying and deceiving are associated with being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The people that lead those that are deceived are often deceived themselves. Luke 6.39 says, And he spake a parable unto them, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? So let's read out this primary verse one more time today. Ecclesiastes 7.16 says, Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? So how does being deceived in such a way where we think that lying, used colloquially as speaking falsehood to deceive, is always a sin, how does that cause us to destroy the truth within ourselves? If we think that telling falsehoods to deceive is always wrong, the first thing it does is it causes us to rest the scriptures. And resting the scriptures, the Bible says, leads to our destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 says, As also in all his epistles, speaking of them in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So the way this occurs is as follows. Rather than bold and valiant women who rightly engaged in deception, the midwives and Rahab are regarded as liars who lacked faith by sinning. They were not punished or rebuked in any way for their lies, even though they were engaged in the supposed lies in the very midst of a great reward. This teaches that if our cause is important enough, God will simply overlook the sin of lying. This contrasts with the scripture. Revelation 21.8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All of these classes of people here, these unrepentant, fearful, unbelieving, abominable, including all liars, um, they're all going to miss the kingdom. It's a very, very serious thing to not lie. Um, it's ironic that pro proponents of this lying doctrine on lying have the same problem that they suppose their doctrinal view is guarding against, where they suppose that, oh, um, if you're allowed to lie somewhere, you'll just lie anywhere, you know? But really, the problem is they have, the, they have a similar problem in their doctrine where they, pro they propose that you can lie, but if it's a big enough deal like Rahab or something, you're just not going to get punished for it. God will just overlook it. But it's not what the Bible says about lying. Lying's a serious sin that has to be repented of. But the biggest problem is this. Proponents of this overwise view on lying, specifically as articulated by Joey Faust, teach that as long as one says words that can be technically interpreted as true, he is not actually lying. 
And if he is not lying, the only restraints he has on his deception is if the person or people being deceived supposedly have the right to know the information or not. Parents to children, husbands to wives, pastors to their congregation. If the authority thinks it is not prudent or wise for someone under his authority to know something, he teaches that it is appropriate to conceal it. And not only conceal things, which is certainly acceptable at times to be silent on matters, but to use and omit words to deceive someone into believing something that's false. Elisha did this in 2 Kings 6. What he did was no different, in essence, from what Rahab or the midwives did. We'll explore that more in the future, Lord willing. But when one believes that what, Elijah, what Elisha did was acceptable, not because he lied to them the same way Rahab or the midwives did in self-defense from an enemy, but instead it was acceptable because he did not lie at all, but spake very cleverly but truthfully, using so-called holy silence of some key facts to deceive those who purportedly had no right to know. We have a doctrine that now makes a liar of a man who does not even know that his own lying doctrine made him into a liar. So now instead of being a Bible-believing people with no guile, we have leaders full of guile. Without getting into it too much, we'll look at 2 Kings 6.19. That verse says, And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. If you read the whole story carefully, you will find that what Elisha told them was plainly not true. If someone thinks that the manner or type of deception Elisha engaged in would ever in any circumstance be acceptable to engage in regarding one's congregation or wife or children, as if they were enemy soldiers out to kill them, exposes such a teacher as teaching that lies are acceptable. Because in those contexts, what Elisha said would be a lie, his specific words not with not his specific words supposedly being true in some shyster lawyer-like way, notwithstanding. A man who believes this cannot be trusted to be truthful. If he thinks there is something you don't need to know, he won't just keep his mouth shut. He will actively open his mouth to try to get you to believe something that is not true. Most normal people intuitively understand that people that open their mouths to get someone to believe something that is not true are liars. Additionally, the Bible says that our consciences can get seared by lying to where they stop working anymore. It would be like if you burned your hand so badly that after it healed, you lost feeling in it entirely. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So if a man starts out deceived by a doctrine of devils that justifies lying by saying it is not lying if he speaks like Elisha did, his conscience will get seared. Next thing you know, after five years, ten years, or whatever of lying in the matter of Elisha, his conscience becomes seared to such an extent that even that which he still defines as a lie in his doctrinal teaching, <coughs> like blatantly saying something that is not true, will be something he begins to engage in because his conscience on the matter is ruined. He is now speaking lies in hypocrisy, as the verse says, blatantly and outright. At this point, he only hides his lying to serve his own ends, or perhaps he still has a bit of feeling in his own conscience to where he hides his lying from himself 
by lying to himself and refusing to remember his deceptive statements or otherwise making himself forget them. In conclusion, we need to understand that being deceived in the scripture does not generally make us innocent victims. We are commanded not to be deceived. Look how many times God commands this. In Deuteronomy 11, 16 to 17, God says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, and there be no rain, and the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. And again in Luke 21, 8, and he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, it says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. As we can see from what we just read, there are some pretty serious consequences from being deceived. And God tells us and commands us not to be deceived. Here's a passage that specifically says, not to let your prophets deceive you. Jeremiah 29, <coughs> verse 8 through 9 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreams. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. Prophets spoke the word of God. So broadly speaking, we are not to let anyone that speaks to us the word of God deceive us. Behold what the word of God says will happen to these lying prophets. In Jeremiah 29, 21 to 23, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, of Ahab the son of Kolaiah, and of Zedekiah the son of Maasiah, which prophesy a lie unto you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. <coughs> and of them shall be taken up a curse by all the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make thee like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have committed villainy in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Even I know and am a witness, saith the Lord." But it's not just the lying prophets. The people that believe them and follow these doctrines, any of us, are also subject to the same punishment if we don't repent. I know that I was partially deceived by this lying doctrine of using words to deceive people while imagining it was okay if the words I was saying could be interpreted as true in some way. Any of us that believed this doctrine or supported it in any way need to repent of this. A key part of repentance is not just stopping doing or supporting or believing in that which we now repent of. It involves actively and actively hindering and opposing and overthrowing that which we once supported. Before and for a while after even I got saved, 
I drank alcoholic beverages. When I repented of that, I made a sign which I would bring downtown in Fort Worth every week for years that clearly showed how Jesus did not make or drink alcoholic beverages and called on Christians to stop partaking of the cup of devils. We need to have that same fervent response in this case. We need to get revenge on our sin. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold the selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Let's make sure we are clear in this matter. We must actively oppose lying doctrines about lying and the liars that promote them. Lord God, we thank you for, again, your word, God. Help us not to be liars. Help us not to deceive one another, God. Forgive us where we've lied. God, I'm certain in this day and age that everyone in here has lied at one point or another, God. Please forgive us of that, God, and help us to go forward without guile, living our lives as sons of God and daughters of God in this perverse and crooked generation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.